Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Try to see things my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? We can work it out. We can work it out. Margaret Brennan. Quick, in your three-plus years covering foreign affairs at CBS News, you've interfaced with how many secretaries of state and defense? Two secretaries of state, two secretaries of defense. You've logged how many air miles, approximately? Oh, God, I have absolutely no idea. Far, far too many. Give me a rough ballpark. I've probably flown around the world at least three times round trip. How many stamps on your passport and how many books have you gone through already? I have two passports. I've gone through um, two of each with additional pages. So I got to tell you, I've got probably well over a hundred different stamps Good Lord. in the past year. And how many Ambien have you popped finally? <laughs> I try not to. I try to hit the gym when I get to a country and I try to just pass out from exhaustion. Ambien only in absolute dire circumstances, like an overnight trip to Afghanistan or something. So this is a rare treat for us. Margaret Brennan, in the same time zone, Ambien free, puts down her sat phone. <laughs> we have her for the hour. Full disclosure. Stay with us. Local broadcast to full disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompson's, aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompson's, located in Richmond's Carytown. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us today. This rare pocket of free time that you have in between filing reports and, and shuttling from the State Department and points overseas in the White House. Uh, uh, really happy to have you. Great to be with you. Tell us what is top of mind for you today. I know uh, I saw you tweeting and writing about the Jason Rezaian issue. This was the Washington Post reporter who's half Iranian, uh, American-born, I believe, who's been held there longer than the hostages from the hostage crisis now. It's been yeah. almost 450 days. What's the state of play? What's going on? There's a lot of confusion, to be frank. You're right. It's 450 days or more now that Jason Rezaian, Washington Post journalist, has been held in the court system there that is extremely opaque. And to be quite frank, even his lawyer and his family don't know what's next for him. They have word uh, from this very hard line, very closed door court that he's been convicted. He hasn't been told what he's been convicted of exactly. There were many charges against him, including one uh, accusing him of espionage for um, what his employer, Washington Post, says was just simply being a journalist. So what's interesting about all of this is not only uh, a journalist who's caught in this geopolitical mess right now, but the broader environment. I mean, you have in the next few days, that nuclear accord that was just negotiated going into effect. You have Iran testing missiles uh, for the first time in a long time. You have this conviction come out. It's a huge confluence of events that is raising some questions about this hard-won accord with Iran and really what's next. Well, that question, the hard-won accord is with these these smiling uh, players of Iran. You talk about, you know, in, in the difficulty in covering Iran, I was born in Iran, and looking at it since uh, the Islamic Revolution is, you don't know which Tehran you're dealing with. I mean, there are hardliners, there are reformists, some of the reformists were the hostage takers, mm -hmm. for example, and then even within the hardliners, there are tiers of hardlinism. I mean, the former president, Rafsanjani, is, 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 is looked at as a pragmatic reformer. There are some who are absolutely hell no, no negotiations, and we can make a great chess pawn out of this Washington Post reporter. Um, why is it in this country's interest broadly to kind of remind people that 
yes, one, we're open for business, but we're not that open for business that this guy can just come over here and practice free speech. Well, you hit on something that I think is so key and it is really hard for the public at large to understand. I mean, I've had people say, how did the United States negotiate round the clock spending more time? You know, John Kerry spent more time with Javad Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, than any other uh, secretary of state because they were trying to negotiate this difficult, difficult accord. With all that time together, how is it possible that we don't have a clear read into the Iranian court system? And it's exactly what you just explained, which is it's incredibly siloed within Iran. The only person truly running the country is the supreme leader. It's all sorts of different divisions, competing interests, and the diplomats don't control the court system. The diplomats don't control the military. And so, basically, the U.S. was negotiating with the right guys over the nuclear cord, but not the right guys to get uh, this American out of prison or the other two Americans who remain behind bars in Iran and uh, another American, Robert Levinson, who remains missing that the U.S. Mm. government wants Iran to help with. Neither side even wants to admit that Robert Levinson exists because he's almost like this spooky type figure. But Jason Rezaian, let's be fair here. I'm watching Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown. I think you were probably way too busy to catch it, but it was almost hagiography about Iran. It was, it was you know, Iran almost open for business. Business, you know, Iran behind the veil. He goes in there and he meets up with, uh, Bourdain meets with Jason Rezaian and his wife, uh, an Iranian national there who's also a journalist, and they take him to a charming uh, restaurant in the mountains north of Tehran and they have kebabs. And he's there singing the praises of his ancestral mm-hmm. homeland and saying, Yeah, I mean, is there a part of me that wishes I was home and having burritos and beer? Yeah, maybe, but I love this country. I think great things are going on. So, on balance, that's an enormous endorsement. At the same time that the country's trying to strike a nuclear deal and an economic normalization with the U.S., again, why would why is there any gain for them to to thwart a person like this or suddenly throw him in jail? Well, it, it, it's hard to give you a clear black and white answer to this because there is so much gray. But uh, what we know is because there are so many competing interests, um, there is in some ways, and it sounds counterintuitive, uh, it, it is in the interest of some who have gained enormous power by controlling some of the major industries in Iran it almost hurts them to open up economically. I'm talking about the IRGC, the the military there has also gotten into the business world, um, owning a tremendous amount of construction companies, a tremendous amount of infrastructure and real estate. And some have said, well, that's helped them gain control over the economy because it's been so um, uh, leveraged against with these sanctions that have cut it off from the rest of the world. The power has really remained so concentrated in the hands of very few. And there's fear on a number of different levels that that power could dissipate a little bit. If there's more economic opportunity more broadly, if there's more freedom in any way, shape, or form, that unbalances the status quo. And so there are some who don't like that idea of a more diplomatically open Iran. Um, certainly, the, the the numbers of youth in that country are assumed to be pro-opening up, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people at the top, even if they are a small percentage of the overall population, are okay with opening all the valves at once. Mm. And meanwhile, you go to the McDonald's homepage, the franchising link says, we sincerely appreciate your expressed interest in our company and patronage of our restaurants. Click here to apply for a franchise in Iran. 
Um, <laughs> you know, talk about cart before horse. This hasn't been fully yeah. ratified on both sides yet, but there's a tremendous amount of excitement. You talk about Jason Rezaian being nostalgic only for the burritos back home. Here I am, you know, here, do an experiment. Bring, and this is a sweeping generalization, but it's so true. Bring any Middle Easterner to the United States and take him or her to a Chipotle, and they will freak out. They're like, oh my God, this is the best thing. You got to bring it over here. You know, it, it would really scale in the Middle East. And I can imagine this in Iran, my homeland, you know, it would sell very well. But then when you have businesses who are also champing at the bit to keep up with the, the French and the Germans and the Dutch and other players who've been in Iran since the revolution, they also look at an example like this and say, it's not quite safe to dip my feet in quite yet. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you're such a cultural imperialist, Robin. You went, you went ch- <laughs> Chipotle's and McDonald's. Chipotle everywhere. can free the world. I don't <laughs> care. Look, McDonald's, I don't care. But Chipotle's can free the world. You know. <laughs> Look, uh, I, I know that you're right. It's cart before a horse on this. This is a, a story of pr- tremendous potential and not a lot quite yet proof to back that up, right? I mean, this nuclear court itself doesn't even go into effect until October 18th. So we're a few days away from that. That's when the clock starts. That's when Iran needs to start um, basically breaking down some of their facilities in agreed upon terms that could have been used uh, for nuclear development purposes. They've got to rip the core out of a reactor at Arak. They have to uh, basically unscrew a few centrifuges. They have to get rid of some uh, enriched uranium stockpile all under these very specific terms that they signed up to back in July. So that whole debate that we've had in this country about the politics of this was just that, debate. Nothing matters until it's actually implemented. The clock starts October 18th, and then the sanctions will only be lifted well down the line. So while the the papers have been signed, it's a lot of wait and see right now to see if this bet on Iran can play out. And it's not only a bet on whether... um, you know, the, the diplomacy is flawless or whether the accord's written right, but it's a bet to see who wins out in this power struggle within Iran. Mm. Um, and, and that's going to be really fascinating to watch. Margaret, I wonder if you subscribe to the bigger picture of um, the United States was so diminished after uh, the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and spending so much of, you know, uh, lives and treasure and prestige over the last 12 years that we had no choice but to uh, live with an emboldened and, and, and stronger and hardier Iran, especially with, with ISIL metastasizing across the Middle East. Uh, when I look at this deal, I wonder what the urgency was for us uh, to do it, aside from the Obama administration really needing a signature uh, foreign policy achievement. <laughs> um Well, this, look, it depends on which ally you talk to. Many are very, very skeptical of the United States and their decision to bet on this accord, saying, look, no one wants a nuclear Iran in the Middle East, Um, certainly not Saudi Arabia and some of the other Arab allies. But there are concerns that, like you said, um, that perhaps some other interests were put aside, uh, sacrificed at the the altar of this deal, for lack of a better term, Um, that, you know, the U.S. turned its eyes away from the slaughterhouse happening in Syria in terms of using the full weight of its diplomacy to counter Iran there, the full weight of its military to counter Iran there um, and elsewhere in in the Middle East because they wanted this deal so badly. it, it's a it's a tough bet, but what we do know from from the Obama administration and what they say is that look, this this president has viewed 
um, reliance on the military as not a sure thing. He wants to rely more heavily on negotiated settlements and diplomacy, more of an approach that European partners support here. The problem with that sometimes is that what you see happening in Syria with both Russia and Iran is they favor creating facts on the ground, which is to say, we're not going to negotiate. We're going to put in our people, whether it's them just trying to prop up a losing regime or not, that is going to continue to destabilize the Middle East. So it is not an easy trajectory to say, I'm going to rely on diplomacy and negotiated settlements and hope for all cooler heads to prevail, which is the Obama administration's position here. Um, but for the president, he sees it as not worth committing uh, the U.S. military in a significant way. The problem, though, when you hear the administration explain that and say, well, we don't want to get into a proxy war with either Iran or Russia in Syria, which is a place that Iran, many would say, is basically running at this point because they're propping up the regime there, mm. um, is that the U.S. is already in a proxy war. The U.S. already did pick a side. Uh, the U.S. did already say we're going to help arm and support a secular democratic, uh, you know, council, and we're actually going to throw money and uh, arms towards those who are fighting for a moderate Syria against the Assad regime. Mm. That already was a position the U.S. staked out in 2011. We are already in a proxy war. There's a really provocative piece in Quartz this week um, by Harun Mogul, which says, uh, really striking headline, Saudi Arabia's last best chance may be an alliance with Israel. Um, hmm. That is really striking to me, and it must be to you as well, um, in uh, almost like World War I shifting of balance of power um, in, in the realignment and the redefinition, the amount of attention accorded to this nuclear accord in Iran and the number of players that that left really ticked off uh, in the yeah. Middle East. People who typically hated each other universally at this point might just be saying enemy of my enemy. Well, the thing that's interesting, when you really listen in to the critics of the nuclear deal, um, whether they be Benjamin Netanyahu or whether they be some of the Arab diplomats who've chosen to uh, share their concern more quietly and not as overtly as, as Benjamin Netanyahu did, um, is their complaints not really about the nuclear program. They're not really about Iran and breaking out and cheating to develop a nuclear warhead. Um Obviously, there's broader concern about that, but that's not what they feel is an immediate threat. What they feel is an immediate threat is an emboldened Iran, period. Basically saying Iran has carte blanche to do what it wants, whether it's you know destabilizing Syria or uh, destabilizing elsewhere through funding Hezbollah for action in Lebanon, destabilizing in Yemen. Um, what you hear from the Obama administration in its defense of this accord is very, very, very narrow, very, very specific to this nuclear deal, which is we're not looking elsewhere. We're only looking at the terms on this paper, and we really are just focused on um, balancing Iran. And like that. I don't understand how they could bifurcate that. A rogue player right. is a rogue player. You can't say, oh, your extracurricular pursuits with Hezbollah or in Syria or some of the provocations on the border in Israel or some of the things you might be wanting to do in Turkey or Yemen or, you know, they, they don't count. We're just concentrating on the centrifuges here. How do you how do you get that past even sympathetic Democrats? 
Well, the administration would say, well, we are taking action to, you know, punish them elsewhere. We are designating and um, putting terrorist labels, which means also freezing them out of the financial markets in some way by slapping sanctions on them. We're doing things like that. Whether that's as muscular of a response as, say, Israel would like or some of the Arab allies would like is up for <laughs> debate, uh, obviously, here. Um, but the administration would say, we are going to try to sideline. They've used financial warfare, if you want to call sanctioning that, um, very very heavily, the Obama administration has. And so they're relying on that in, in many ways and doing other things, of course, to try to interdict weapons shipments and whatnot that Iranian-backed groups are receiving. Mm. Um, so they do do that. But whether that adds up to the full weight of American might is another question. Mm. We did see a Hezbollah commander, a senior commander, killed in Israel, um, I think it was 24 hours ago, in addition to uh, one of these... Um, uh, senior uh, military figure sent in from Tehran. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like uh, it's definitely a proxy war at this point. And it's hard to separate, you know, who's behind who. Uh, you have the argument out in the West that uh, Vladimir Putin is effectively kind of carpet bombing any enemies of Assad. His interest and Iran's interest is to prop up the incumbent regime as, as you know, even their, their maybe secular rebels out there. There may be people out there who would also like to destroy ISIS. But since they're against Assad, we have to snuff them out as well. Um, Iran is suffering collateral damage. Suddenly, Vladimir Putin can stand on the stage and say that in the absence of multilateralism, we're there uh, bringing order back to the country. How did this all happen? <laughs> um very slowly over four and a half years of absolute brutality and what the United Nations has called the greatest humanitarian catastrophe of this century. Mm. Um, when I hear people say, wow, no one saw this coming, they are not talking to the policymakers in the Middle East experts and Middle East watchers who have been begging for more uh, attention to be paid to the conflict in Syria over the past four and a half years, who bet from the get-go that this could not be contained, it could not be managed. Those policymakers lost the battle. Uh, the, those in the White House who were more vocal in saying, look, we can manage this, it's terrible. Mass slaughter is terrible. It can be managed. It can be contained. The refugee crisis, while it can, you know, destabilize the surrounding countries, we will help fund refugee camps. We will help fund the governments hosting those refugees. We can manage this. Um, obviously, you've seen that containment didn't play out. Mm. You're seeing um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees just hemorrhage out of Syria into the surrounding countries and work their way through to Europe. Um, it's really hard to to try to contain this in any real way. I will come back to one thing you were talking about with Russia and Iran. Look, I think it's less about uh, Putin's interest in maintaining the regime per se, maintaining Bashar al-Assad, it's about maintaining control, period, in this very central territory in the Middle East. That is the bet for Iran. That is the bet for Russia. It is about having your finger on the scale. It is about having facts on the ground so that when things change, if they change, you have a voice, a vote, and an influence. Whether it's your guy at the top of the regime or not, you cannot have a settlement in Syria without Russia and Iran being at the table. Hmm. This isn't just a matter of them cutting off support or not. Now it's you have to negotiate through Russia. You have to negotiate through Iran if you want anything to stop in Syria. It's an enormous vacuum and a diffusion of responsibility. And I'd like you to take us back 
Uh, you, you uh, in your bio, it's you studied the Middle East, you, you speak Arabic, you've uh, traveled abroad, I believe, on a Fulbright. Was it to Jordan? Uh, it was a Fulbright Hayes Grant, so Hayes it's specific Grant. to language in Jordan, yeah. And have you been to Syria, actually, before the Arab Spring? Uh, yeah, I was in Syria. It was quite some time and ago. And what, what was it like? You were in Damascus. Tell me about it back then, and then we'll walk into 2010 and 2011. Yeah, I mean, that was back when I was a student, so it was many, many years ago. Um, I think it was uh, 2000. Yeah, it was before September 11th, so it was truly mm. a different world. Um, but I, uh, I was there as an American at a time when, you know, you had two chances to visit Syria because they'd only let you enter the country twice as an American on your visa. Um, and I went and traveled as much as I possibly could within the country. I went up to Aleppo, went to Damascus. And it was absolutely, Damascus in particular, an astoundingly beautiful I always country. hear that. Yeah, I hear that from people who've been there. Really beautiful. And so many different Europeans there, so many Iranians there, so many tourists, um, really great artisans. You know, if you, you ever go shopping in Jerusalem or elsewhere in the Middle East mm. and you want really great art, they tell you, oh, this was made by a Damascene artist. You know, it just a, a ton of culture emanating from that city um, and, and that country. But it was also a time when Bashar al-Assad had just come to power. Sure. I remember driving into Damascus, and there were still um, signs up mourning Hafez al-Assad, his father, uh, who you know was a strong man who ruled that country for many, many years. And the bet was things were going to liberalize. He was starting to allow for some internet access. Yeah, and you Western see again, educated. you see this guy on Charlie Rose. He's very Western. Yeah. He speaks great English. Wasn't he trained as an ophthalmologist at a Western university? Exactly. And he and was then, never supposed to run the country, though. It was his elder brother who. Died, who, Basel, who died, who died and in I a hear, car accident. I, you know, I'm not going to get into the, the, you know, psychographics of this and psychobabbling from thousands of miles away. But I always hear that his mother goads him to be more like his father. His father cracked down on an uprising in the early 80s, an infamous uprising, and built a highway <laughs> somewhere in Damascus over uh, these people. I would look at him and I would look at his wife and their tastes and proclivities. And if you see the writing on the wall and the Arab Spring, and yes, you're a uh, Alawite minority running a majority Sunni country. You know, get out of Dodge. Go take, go take, take your billions and, and go to Tehran. Let what happens happens. Unless you want to end up like Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi. But I don't understand. I mean, he stood there, and you were there in 2013. Obviously, you covered much of the Arab Spring when we were at Bloomberg together. You were there in Tahrir Square in Egypt when these unbelievable things were happening. We never imagined that he would cross the line of using chemical weapons, and that happened in the autumn of 2013. Mm -hmm. It did. I mean, he, he crossed the line, uh, according to U.S. and other Western intelligence, you know, killing nearly 2,000 people, most of them civilians. And if, if you uh, I've talked to some of the doctors who continue to advise um, civilian hospitals there, field hospitals. I mean, you can't even re really call them hospitals by mm -hmm. Western standards, but uh, where they continue to treat chemical weapon attacks victims of those attacks. What they will tell you, though, is it's chlorine gas um, in very concentrated levels that can cause you to literally stop breathing, particularly if you're elderly, particularly if you're a small child. We, saw, we saw the footage again on 60 Minutes yeah. several weeks ago, and it was it was nauseating the first time we saw it, and it brought to mind Saddam Hussein and Halabja with the Kurds. People just don't 
do this in the era of the Twitterverse and everything getting instant instant well, replays. Well, the, the regime is continuing to do it, and that's what's interesting. But They're why, continuing to do it, it with chlorine gas. When you had to react to this, and when you were covering the, this for CBS News, and then you you made some history subsequently when you um, asked Secretary uh, of State John Kerry about his thoughts on this, why would a rational player, again, if we're looking at this guy as moderate, he, he likes Western clothes, he likes Western movies, why would he go there? To what end? I, it's still not clear, um, and some would say, you know, did he actually have himself a direct role in ordering it? Um, there's some question over who's running the place. Some would say, uh, as a critic of Bashar, look at his strongman father, for as brutal as he was, would never have allowed himself to be um, taken to task and bossed around by Iran. And some would say Bashar has, because in order to stay in power, um, he is no longer truly um, in power, essentially. He's not, mm. he's not the guy at the head while he has the title. I'm not sure about that, um, whether that's an accurate read or not. I mean, weapons inspectors would also tell you it's a very strange decision to carry out a chemical weapons attack when you have weapons inspectors already present in the country who can prove that you just did it. It's not logical. Full disclosure, we're talking to Margaret Brennan. She covers foreign affairs uh, for CBS News. Margaret and I crossed paths both at Bloomberg News and CNBC several lifetimes ago. Um, this, in many ways, is a is a dream job for you. You could never really imagine flying the world with the Secretary of State at a time of of such such upheaval. I mean, you could say that at any point in time if you were, you know, there in 1988 and 1989 and 1990. But this has really put every last bit of the administration's foreign policy in sharp relief. I mean, they didn't. Obama didn't come to office billing himself as a foreign policy president. Uh, but I think he's going to be remembered on the way out as as you know, if his his lasting achievement is the Iran deal. I mean, for me as a reporter, it's been fascinating because, you know, when your job is covering diplomacy, it's hard to think of a time when you've had more of a, of a golden age of at least attempts at that, right? I mean, you had the chemical weapons deal you just talked about to uh, get Syria to hand over its declared chemical weapons stockpile. That was negotiated um, in very high stakes uh, room with John Kerry and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. You had the nuclear deal. You've had a number of uh, attempts at negotiating something that'll stick in Ukraine. So far, it's been a tentative success with this latest agreement. And then you have the diplomatic opening in Cuba. For me, I've been extremely busy and lucky to be able to do that at a time when, for a decade or more before that, the Pentagon was the uh, was America's the place face to be. abroad. Sure. Right. Um, and, and it certainly still is. And that's one of the things that, that doesn't get attention enough is what's continuing to happen in Afghanistan and the uh, what some would say was a diplomatic vacuum in Iraq uh, after the drawdown there, that there wasn't enough engagement after the troops left Iraq on the diplomatic side. Well, and the entire the entire Middle spot. East is one enormous Hoover vacuum. We'll get into that. <laughs> but I want to get that's back true. to September 9th, 2013. I know this is always going to be on your bio. Uh, at a press conference, you asked John Kerry, the Secretary of State, about any possibility uh, for the Syrian government, which did cross that red line, to avert U.S. airstrikes. And uh, he answered almost in a, you know, in a, in a moment of peak that, yeah, you know, Assad could turn over every single bit of his chemical weapons to the international community in the next week. He backtracked a little bit afterwards, but then Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov jumps on that to propose this as a solution to the crisis. I mean, did you ever wonder if you kind of changed the course of diplomatic history there? <laughs> I've been asked about this a lot. I, I honestly don't know um, what the trajectory would have been at that point. 
um, other than that solution. It was so clear. Well, when you those... say you cross the line, when you say don't go there, they effectively tried it. And, and everyone else's read on it is, you know, Obama's like, all right, uh, all right, yeah. you know what? I'm going to remand this to Congress. Let's see what Congress. Something happened in the UK. Yeah. The parliament didn't want yeah. to get behind it there. And it gave an opening for Obama exactly. to kind of prevaricate on this. And everything since has kind of been a function of that vacuum. Right. It's it's not clear whether those, you know, limited what John Kerry described as, you know, pinprick type strikes that were very specific to taking out just a few chemical weapons facilities or storage facilities would have made a difference. But certainly those in the Syrian opposition would have said to you, look, that would have really sent shockwaves that we could have used to our advantage on the ground but to what accelerate opposition, into this Margaret, war. You saw the embarrassing news that came out this week. Millions spent on five guys. I mean, this is the gang that couldn't oppose straight. I mean, there's no there there. And that counterfactually, the administration can take you off the record and say, what if we did we did cause a huge vacuum there and ISIL was at the ready to kind of fill it? They took Aleppo, they took other cities, they could take Damascus. Right. At that time, we weren't looking at the same uh, situation on the ground. Um, at that time, the administration did believe that Assad was in danger. At that time, they weren't taking ISIS seriously. It, it was very different um, on the situation on the ground. I'm not saying what the opposition was arguing is the correct bet. I'm saying I don't know what that is. That's a truly hypothetical situation. But you know, um, rhetor rhetorically, when you look at the Gordian knot now, and a lot of this is, is 2020, and I know I just mixed metaphors there, but you had Assad when he was dealing with this uh, insurgency in its first or second year saying that these were terrorists, and the Iranians were saying this were these were terrorists. Putin were saying he's fighting terrorists. Um, and then when you give him the opening to say, yes, you see, it's me or the terrorists, you, you leave a, a very bad right. uh, set of options for, uh, you know, good people of the world, the multilateral world. Yeah, there have only been very hard decisions since this conflict began. But mm -hmm. You know, it's been a series of half measures on the part of the West and the United States in particular here to to help buoy up that opposition. Um, what you mm. specifically referenced there in terms of that $500 million program to build an army, essentially, build an infantry, um, is one specific thing that was relatively new. The president said he authorized it without even believing in it, and it got off to what many would just call abject failure um, to, to end up with such a small amount of fighters and and not even ready yeah, to go what out happened? into the battlefield. You know, the free Syrian army. But, I was reading the well, Economist. Well, that's a different thing. But there the was a guy Syrian with a there was a guy with a there. great looking beard. He would have been so telegenic. He would have been great for for rose garden photo ops and everything. We couldn't, you know, back in the day. Again, here's the imperialist me, Margaret. We'd find a good puppet to put in there. Um, but it shows you our paucity of options uh, in this new world order. Yeah, but I mean, the the excuse of it's difficult doesn't mean you don't make a decision, right? And you also know that when there are situations on the ground, when people are fighting, things change very quickly. So Hillary Clinton makes her argument for a reason when she says it would have made a difference if there had been, um, you know, action taken. When I argued to help arm and train years ago, right? Mm -hmm. What you also know is if you and I are fighting for our lives, we're not sitting around and hearing everyone out and making their argument for a secular democratic Syria sometime in the future. You're grabbing a gun and trying to save your family's life, right? right. And that's what policymakers like, you know, former diplomats, Robert Ford and others would say, listen, guys, you got to read the situation in realistic terms. The less you help, the more they're going to lean towards the guys with money and guns. And they're not necessarily going to be the folks that we would like to see in power. You're going to get a 
slide towards more and more extreme or more and more Islamist. Mm. And that's where we've ended up, right? And then ISIS is in a category unto its own, uh, along with al-Qaeda over there. But there are so many different groups. There aren't easy choices here. Um, But basically, the policy has been don't take one. You were also covering the 2011 military intervention in Libya, which spelled the end of, of Muammar Gaddafi's reign. I don't understand what was so different about that. You know, I, I know there was a, an article somewhere. Um, Obama was really on the fence, and there was true uh, consultation. Um, you know, Hillary went one way; his national security team maybe went the other way. What made that different from, say, you know, the the, the immediate threat to the Libyan people from Gaddafi wanting to storm and and bomb the heck out of a region versus Assad kind of getting free reign to do it with barrel bombs and chlorine bombs? Yeah, I mean, look, he, he, and you look at almost... you look at Libya now. Yeah. Well, two things. One, Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein didn't have the full weight of Iran and Russia behind them trying to prop them up, right? So different fate, different um, support system in, mm-hmm. in terms of Assad. Secondly, I mean, when you look at the, the, the way that um, the, the Arab Spring played out on a clear timeline, if you look at it in order, uh, a lot of the Obama administration's actions in the Middle East were shaped by the war previous in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. So there's been sort of a, let's not make that same mistake again. Then the next action Libya, oh, shoot, wait, we take action and then there's no follow through on the U.N. or party international community to put in place any kind of support system for this transitional government. Um, And then you end up with a vacuum and a civil war. Wow, that means don't do that again. Next conflict. There you go. There's Syria, right? So we're not going to repeat anything else that was done before. Whereas some would say you got to look at each situation for what it is and not be, um, you know, carrying the baggage of your last fight Um, with Libya, it's, you know, this is something that continues to haunt the Obama administration when it goes up to argue against Russia at the United Nations, which is, you know, Russia acquiesced and allowed for that action by not blocking a, a international vote to act in Libya and to carry out that bombing campaign. Mm. And the Russians have said, look, this is what happens. This is what Vladimir Putin just said at the UN. You guys go in, you say you support democracy, you're helping chop off the head, and then you end up with chaos. I'm not letting you do it again. This is what you guys create. Just a mess. I like order. I'm going to try to create that in Syria, as as wrongheaded as, a bet as the administration thinks that is. Mm. Um, but it, it's the, the problem with that argument on the Russian part is Assad controls 20 percent of the country and it's not coming back. So even if you back the strong man and prop him back up, you can't put that that broken egg back together. But the West is also betting it can through a negotiated solution somehow get this country to stay together. Mm. Um, but right now it's listen, this is utterly heartbreaking when, when you look at the humanitarian disaster that's wrapped into a national security one that's just emanating out of Syria. Mm. And the intervention there from Iran actually very openly sending its top IRGC <laughs> commanders there. To, IRGC, Hezbollah, absolutely. Everyone, I but mean, that has to that has to really exacerbate uh, raw and bloody wounds um, yes. in, the, in the Shia-Sunni divide right now. I mean, it's one thing. This happens in the wake of, of the Hajj catastrophe with many Iranian pilgrims dying in Saudi Arabia. Um, Tehran, uh, calling the ambassador from Saudi Arabia several times. Like, what, what, what happened there? Was there any uh, uh, malice? 
there's a lot of skepticism. There's a tremendous amount of, I mean, you have to go back to the 80s. You know, the United States supported Iraq. The Arab regimes, the, 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 the Gulf states supported Iraq against Iran. Iran comes out of that really ticked off, survives, lives to see another day. The conventional wisdom was that taking out Baghdad and taking out Kabul would, would also take down Tehran, but it only strengthened it. And now you kind of have this, I would say it's never been this bad in, in, in my recollection uh, in the 35 years of the Islamic Republic in terms of relations between Arabs and Persians. Well, certainly uh, Arab states surrounding Iran look around the neighborhood and they feel very concerned by um, what they see as a potentially emboldened Iran in the wake of this nuclear deal. That isolation was something that they thought helped keep Iran in check, at least in terms of giving them broader international power. Um, Iranians, Iranian diplomats are really interesting to talk to on this because they see this coming in from the cold as incredibly symbolically important, mm. which is, um, I mean, y you know the tremendous history uh, of the Persian Empire and of Iran. And they and don't, feel don't forget, Ronald way, Reagan sent Khomeini a Bible and a birthday cake, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> There's a history. There have been attempts at this. But some see this nuclear deal as the international community allowing it to come in from the cold and giving it some respect that it's desired for a really long time. So but then a rational, a rational player would say, okay, if you want that respect, if you want Chipotle's and Shiraz and Isfahan, uh, you should then drop the extracurricular pursuits in Syria, in Lebanon, right? I mean, if you were talking to a single-headed beast— in Tehran, right, but you're and not, this goes back, right, you're not. which is exactly the point. You're not, and, and that's the thing. Well, it's almost a logical fallacy of this deal. Then is that we were dealing with moderates. We were dealing with very Western savvy people. You know, John Kerry himself, his his daughter married a, a, an Iranian American, right? I mean, he's 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 comfortable with these things. He's 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 open with these things, and there are people on the other side that are okay shaking hands and they can roll their eyes at the clerics, you know, parenthetically. Uh, but ultimately, if you're not dealing with them, what good does this do? Well, look, the bet is that with dealing with people like Javad Zarif, who, you know, is an extremely charming, can joke with you, speak absolutely flawless, fluent English, and negotiate around the clock this amazing, <laughs> amazing in terms of accomplishment, maybe not amazing in terms of, uh, of um, content, nuclear deal, uh, that that is a bet for more guys like him, essentially, mm. that those who are allied with Hassan Rouhani, the president, like Javad Zarif is, and some of those who are at the negotiating table, that this is tipping the scale towards empowering them. I will say, just to close off, you know, that Iran part of our conversation is there was this hope when uh, Khatami was elected president in the late 90s that he was the smiling person who was going to finally bring Iran out from the cold. Uh, there was going to be a rapprochement with the West, and he was thwarted by the hardliners. They, they tried to yeah. kill some of his cabinet ministers. There were these student protests in 1999 uh, that you really have to take a, a wait-and-see approach. I do want to move you a bit to um, uh, Bibi Netanyahu's Lonely Autumn after he <laughs> lost out on thwarting this Iran nuclear accord. You're seeing what some are saying is an incipient third intifada in Israel now with, with uh, several knife attacks a day, everybody yeah. on edge, some nursery schools calling uh, uh, early hours because they can't get enough security guards. Uh, what is going on there? What's your read? And what are the options for Israel? Well, John Kerry made a call to Benjamin Netanyahu and to the Palestinian Authority head, um, Mahmoud Abbas, just a few days ago, calling for calm there and trying to um, basically talk some sense uh, into those heads of state. Um, but 
the problem is that the kind of attacks you're seeing, they're not necessarily, um, you can't necessarily stop them from the top down, right? You're seeing these one-off knife attacks or uh, group attacks. It, they're almost um, utterly terrifying if, if you think that, you know, just walking down the street in Tel Aviv, you can be knifed just for, you know, um, for who you are in, in terms of your identity. That's utterly terrifying for the populace at large. That's obviously the bet. On the Israeli side, in terms of actions in the Palestinian territories, you've heard U.S. officials extremely concerned that the Netanyahu government has continued where it's, its encroachment on Palestinian land um, in the past year in terms of continued developments, in terms of cordoning off Palestinian you know, Margaret, communities. Margaret, we, we were talking to Ian Bremmer recently, and he said that it's striking the extent to which that doesn't even qualify now, the top five of the pressing Mideast issues. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's been so backburnered, and you must imagine that if there's nothing to look forward to, if there's not even a, a um, you know, just a, a symbolic BS peace initiative on the table, theoretically, that people are going to turn to uh, the, the intifada option, which they did in the 80s and they did in, in, in the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, y y there's always this desire to label um, protest among Palestinians, the next intifada. I remember just being in um, being in the region and, and driving into Ramallah with Secretary Kerry uh, during the Gaza war, the most recent Gaza, right before the most recent Gaza war, I should say, when he was trying to get that peace process going, um, it, which ended in total failure in terms of diplomatic accomplishment because neither side really wanted to negotiate at that point because they didn't see the other as an honest broker. Mahmoud Abbas, he's aging his um, authority, Palestinian authority, which is, you know, governing the West Bank, doesn't control the Gaza Strip, right? It doesn't have um, as much uh, authority as would require um, as much legitimacy among the populace at large because they haven't delivered for the people. At the same time, U.S. officials were incredibly skeptical that Benjamin Netanyahu was in any way serious um, in negotiating anything that would give Palestinians territory uh, and protection like they asked for. So this has been dire for years now. You, you see it bubble up um, with these conflicts in Gaza and the like. They get incredibly bloody. But th this is, you know, I, I would have a hard time believing that there's going to be a peace process sprouting out of this. John Kerry, I know, would love to jumpstart another one of those because he had invested so much time um, and so much effort and, and saw that just explode in that bloody Gaza war. Mm, and if I take you to Turkey right now, uh, there were these bombings in Ankara. We don't know who was behind them. Uh, there are allegations. Obviously, the administration there, the regime, wants to point the finger at, at uh, Islamic State. Uh, but there are critics that the, the Kurdish street is wondering if the regime and some of its nationalist factions had a hand in this. What does Turkey represent in this entire role? I mean, we, we know Gosh. its geostrategic importance as this bridge between Asia and Europe, uh, this really important place in the Middle East, the place where uh, you can fly uh, to, to really first world type cities and feel mm -hmm. like you're in a European city. But this seems to set it back. Yeah, I mean, this is another country where analysts have placed bet the wrong way for many years. Um, you know, Erdogan was the, the head of state in Turkey, um, was really embraced as someone who was going to be a reformist and really align Turkey more and more with Europe, right? There was all this talk about them possibly joining the European Union. And then you see uh, Turkey sucked into this morass um, of what's happening next door. I mean, they're taking millions of Syrian refugees in across the border. They've got a direct and uh, strategic stake in how that fight plays 
out. Um, and the U.S. would say, look, guys, you got to do more. This is on your border. And they only just allowed U.S. access to, to the air base there uh, at Injilik. Um, there are a lot of complexities when it comes to Turkey. But one thing that it has just popped up in the past few uh, weeks or so that I think is really interesting in a way to view Turkey is just don't forget that it is a member of NATO. That inherently gives it a vote that insists that the rest of the West pay attention to what is happening to it. They are not going to go it alone. In fact, they have the ability to demand um, military backup, military support um, from the U.S. and for others if they do face this threat. So there's a lot of internal politics right now with Erdogan, how much he wants to hold on to power. But you have to imagine, Margaret, that it was an it was an enthusiastic member of NATO in a past life. Erdogan does not want to exactly brandish that to his base. You know, I, I, I can't I can't quite no, get a read on this No, but you see these Russian guy. incursions that you uh, have happened twice, at least in the past two weeks. You see these Syrian um, jets that are basically playing games with the Turkish F-16s that are policing their own border, lock-ons, they call them, um, that some would view as uh, Russia's taunt to NATO. What are you going to do about it? I can challenge uh, territorial integrity of one of your members. Show me what you're going to do about it, right? So there's an interesting way to view it that way. Um, and there's an interesting way of Turkey saying, listen, NATO, I've been begging you for more help to deal with this Syrian crisis, with the millions of people flooding across our border. Stop telling me that I need to control my border and keep um, the foreign fighters from flowing in and mm. out, something that the international community still hasn't been able to control. So they are becoming more and more central. It's really hard to get a read on what Erdogan uh, game is. And, and they've got elections coming up, I think, in November, sometime very soon. Hmm. Full disclosure, we're joined by Margaret Brennan. She covers foreign affairs at CBS News. Um, in the 10 or 12 so minutes we have left, I'd love you to switch gears back to Hillary Clinton. And I'm not asking you to make an endorsement here, but you covered her um, quite a bit when she was this uh, globetrotting uh, state secretary. She put on serious miles. She aged. She threw herself heart and soul at it to the point of these really dangerous headaches that she had and dizziness. Um, let's assume that the odds prevail and that she becomes the next president of the U.S. What kind of world is she going to inherit? One, I would step back and say it would be fascinating. And you covered, you know, I didn't even get into your life as a uh, really connected Wall Street correspondent. And if you had George Soros on your Bloomberg show, you've had you've interviewed Christine Lagarde. Imagine the world where, um, you know, you, you talk about the bookends globally, Lagarde, Clinton, um, Janet Yellen and, uh, you know, uh, Angela Merkel. <laughs> That's a mm -hmm. very different world. And I want to know geostrategically and, and, and with the Obama administration's um, effort or lack of effort in Syria, what exactly she's going to inherit if she indeed gets sworn in in 2017. Um Look, being Secretary of State would age anyone. Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, I've, I've, I've seen both. Um, I think one of the things that Hillary Clinton gets criticized for is she didn't have the kind of diplomatic agreements that John Kerry brought to the plate. Is that a matter of timing? Is that a matter of taking risk? It's not clear. Is that a matter of just, you know, the, the right people aligning at the right time in Iran or elsewhere? Um, so you can criticize or not her, her foreign policy record, but she certainly has staked out positions on Syria that have uh, differed from the Obama administration. I think that's interesting. I mean, she's on a few different fronts challenged the administration in the past few Weeks, such as such as what? Tell me. 
well, one of them is Syria, saying I wanted to arm and I got overruled the, the opposition internally back in 2012, as did the head of the CIA at the time, mm -hmm. and as did the defense secretary at the time. But the president didn't want to do it. I would have done it. She also just said that she would like to see some kind of safe zone, basically some version, hybrid version of a, a no-fly no zone, zone sure. in Syria to allow a, basically a safe place for refugees to run and possibly the opposition to um, build itself up. President said, "No, you know, easier to be a candidate than it is to be president. You don't basically have a, a clear read on why we can't do that." Um, you also had her split on the uh, trade deal known as the TPP, um, which basically knits together, you know, a, mm -hmm. a third or more of um, uh, of the global economy to try to be a counterweight in some ways to China and setting the rules of the road for trade. Something Hillary had to campaign for when she flew around Asia. I was on many of those trips, um, getting people to help agree to this. And yet now, as a presidential candidate, she said, I'm not for that. Is that just politics? Because, you know, the unions have been skeptical and some of that base of support, something she needs to have with her, particularly if she wants to offset the popularity of Bernie Sanders, possibly. But that's something the administration doesn't exactly appreciate that she's differing um, from them on. So there's some interesting things there. But here's the deal, um, Margaret, they're not going to go. And I know she went her separate ways and she could go on book tour and do whatever she wants and rehabilitate until she was ready to run yeah. for president. But they're not going to go full bore on this Iran deal, for example, without consulting or getting her suasion behind the scenes. Or there has to be some follow through if the statistics prevail and you become president. Or am I reading that incorrectly? They're just going to go about their own ways with Kerry and Biden and Obama when Hillary stepped down from state. Do, are you asking, does she inherit a policy that she wouldn't be able to then influence? I'm just asking if they didn't get, you know, maybe a parenthetical okay from her on certain things that they did. Like, look, well, look you, you, put her... in the, you put in the hours and the miles and you set this up for us. We're going to follow right. through when you're not with the administration anymore. Well, certainly if Congress signs off on the trade deal, that then, you know— she can say all she wants, what she wants on the campaign trail, not have it influence the actual mm. outcome um, if Congress votes it through, um, which is going to be a hard vote to get. But the administration is going to have that fight when it comes to the Iran deal. Yeah, this is this is an architecture of the deal that's in place under international law. It's a, it's a U.N. Um, you know, sign off there. That's not up to the president uh, per se to undo all that diplomacy. It would be incredibly messy to try to do mm. so. And in fact, it was her, uh, one of her very top aides who's expected to have a very key role in the White House if she is elected, Jake Sullivan, who helped begin those secret talks along with Bill Burns, who met with the Iranian sure. top diplomat at the State Department under Hillary Clinton's watch. So uh, she had a role in getting this going. Um, she's viewed perhaps as being more muscular in foreign policy when it comes to um, action in Syria, when it comes to uh, whether she'd be willing to have a public spat with Israel. Mm -hmm. um, not as clear, right? Yeah, um, I want to I wanna, I wanna, uh, ask you about that. So Netanyahu was overtly campaigning for Mitt Romney. Yeah. in uh, 2012. And he <laughs> really put his eggs in the whole Republican, the GOP basket with what many people in 2020 hindsight are saying was an overreach when you came here and you violated mm -hmm. diplomatic protocol and you really stepped on Obama's toes. I mean, you talk about ticking off the administration. They they embarrassed Joe Biden when they continued with a settlement plan during a visit. I mean, this is going back a ways that he, they, they have zero love lost for one another. But he has to be mindful of you know, if the statistics play out, if probability pays out and I have to deal with a President Hillary Clinton, is she going to treat me much better? I mean, how do I make the best of a situation that I've kind of mucked up in the short term? 
Look, the, the emotions and histrionics of this and the theater of this have been incredibly fascinating to watch, right, um, with Benjamin Netanyahu going to Congress without giving the heads up um, to, to the administration itself. But the architecture of that U.S.-Israeli relationship has still been knit together on the intelligence side. It's still, still been knit together on the defense side. They get an incredible amount of foreign uh, money, uh, foreign affairs uh, aid, I should say, and and military aid from the United States, none of that has changed. So it's really a matter of, um, you know, personality and p viewpoints between uh, the Israeli prime minister and the American president. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't have the support of every Israeli, uh, just like President Obama doesn't have the support of every American, but they have to deal with each other. When the new next head of state in both countries come in, my bet will be this slate will be wiped clean largely because the, the underlying relationship, none, nothing that is material has truly been undone here. Right. And Margaret, what in the wake of the Arab Spring, I, I remember you again in Tahrir Square and all the exciting things that were happening there at the beginning of 2010. What changed so fundamentally that um, the, the situation between Israel and the occupied territories, the incursions, you know, left and right happening once or twice a year, no longer seemed to stoke the street to get up. Something fundamentally changed um, when the, the new regime came to power there that is, is broadly, and it's not monolithic, is the Arab street kind of almost tired of the Arab-Israeli conflict? <laughs> the Arab street is not monolithic. Um that is for sure. Many, many different countries, many, many different problems. And, you know, it's always going to come down to your own kitchen table when you're sitting in one of those countries, what's impacting you economically, what's impacting you politically. And there have been a plenty of problems for people to worry about at home uh, rather than the, uh, you know, long held, deeply felt wounds um, of, of, you know, what some would view as an occupation, what some would view as a, you know, um, you know, the, the right side of history in creating uh, the state of Israel. When it comes to Egypt, a different conversation here. What's interesting right now with um, the president, Sisi, um, is that some would say the Egyptian-Israeli relationship is tighter than ever. In fact, um, the you know, this former general, this former head of the military, who is now the president of the Egyptian state, speaks to Benjamin Netanyahu regularly. It blows, has many it interests blows my mind. I've, you know, I've heard a couple of cabbies in New York, and you know their information is very solid, think that he was installed by Mossad and the CIA and MI6. <laughs> Look, you, you know, anytime you talk to anyone in the Middle East, there are so many different conspiracy theories. Oh, Iranians right, used to be wrongly. kings of the conspiracy theories. You know, we all have ancient Persian emperors in our blood. <laughs> what can I say? But, but on this one, what's so interesting is it's because of shared interests. Look, that's what it comes down to. Americans always like to write off these, like, deep-seated uh, conflicts as something that's so incredibly foreign and hard to understand and wrap our heads no, around. No, but the Listen, real politics does revert to, back. It always does. It always comes so down to So isn't it amazing to you is. that the cradle of Arab civilization in this case, let's say Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Israel are more on the same page in 2015 than they have been maybe in 35 years? I think it says a lot about uh, the way that they view Iran as a threat, the way they view, or those heads of state, I should say, maybe not the people at large, those, the heads of state view uh, the terror threat of ISIS. That's what brought uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, Sisi together here on this, is that fear of what's happening in the Sinai. And there is a quiet uh, war of sorts being waged by the Egyptian security forces against an Islamist insurgency in the Sinai. Mm. That is a shared border with Israel. 
Neither of them want um, those kind of uh, extremists coming into the populace at large. So if it comes to shared interests, they are very much uh, in, in alignment. Plus, you know, they've had a peace treaty for forever. But now that they seem tighter than ever because of um, this fear of ISIS and extremists. Well, as... Um Stephen Dimitri Georgiou, a.k.a. Cat Stevens, a.k.a. Yusuf Islam, once put it, ooh, baby, baby, it's a wild world. Uh, <laughs> before we close, Margaret, is there one more thing that we should be paying attention to that you think is getting short shrifted on the globe right now? Um, well, the stalemate against ISIS uh, is something that people do need to continue to watch. I think um, the refugee crisis may get worse in terms of what's emanating out of Syria because of the increased violence and these airstrikes that are happening against um, moderates. Uh, the, the U.S. says that the Russia's striking areas where um, some of the guys the U.S. backs are. This is only going to cause some of the 7 million displaced people inside Syria to look for safer ground. Um, Afghanistan, we often take our eye off the ball there, at least in the media, um, of reminding people of what is going to be a big decision that the president has to make in terms of troop levels in that country. There had been that promise to draw down to about 1,000 uh, U.S. troops to remain in Afghanistan in the year to come. President's looking at that. You just heard uh, the head of U.S. forces in Afghanistan tell Congress last week, I need more guys. Even 5,000 is not going to be enough because he is seeing ISIS on the rise in Afghanistan and a resurgent Taliban. They are worried. They need more support. So it's going to be a big decision. Does the president want to go with what his generals are asking or does he want to go with a promise he made uh, to bring troops home? It's going to be really interesting. Thing to uh, watch. Oh, wow, Margaret. Uh, thank you so much. I think you're going to be exhausting several other passport books and uh, vials of <laughs> Ambien that you no doubt buy from Sam's Club. <laughs> Margaret Brennan is foreign affairs correspondent at CBS News. Overall, polymath who covers markets, politics. You'll see her on the evening news. You'll see her on this morning. Thank you so much for making time today. Thank you. Full disclosure, a special thank you to CBS Radio in Washington. Our intrepid engineer is John Valentine. We are proudly on NPR One, WRIR, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, all over the tweeters at Full D Radio. Internationally known to rock the microphone, I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.